Before we begin, let's bow together again. Father, uh, it's so easy to sing songs. To recite someone else's words. To talk about letting you have all of me. Oh, Lord, I confess here before you in this congregation that I have so often, Lord, even today, not given you all of me. But you look much deeper within, beyond through, past, under, and above the way things appear. When the world sees one thing, you see truth. And you desire truth in the inmost parts. How many of us, Lord, sing these songs on Sunday? but hold back. Have areas in our, in our thought lives, in our, in our private places that nobody sees where we still call the shots. We still hold on to control. Teach us, Father. Teach us now. Teach us every day to relinquish control. to truly let you take the wheel. Lord, help us as your, as your people, as your children, those who belong to you, having believed your promises, having taken hold of the grace offered to us in Christ. Help us, Lord, to recognize that it really doesn't matter what other people think. And it doesn't matter if we can come up with arguments to justify our behaviors and our attitudes. If we can find high-sounding reasons for our bitterness and our unforgiveness, our selfishness, our greed, our lust, our dishonesty, our pride. Oh, Lord, we can, we can clean them up and put church clothes on them and make them seem so pious and holy, and yet it's still a cancerous sin. As we open your word, Lord, I pray that you would just eviscerate us, that you would carve out of us the very guts of our sin, that we might be transformed so that the change that you have wrought within us would be visible to those outside and visible to you where they cannot see. Teach us in this moment and in every moment to live a life worthy of the calling we've received. We pray this in the name of the one who did exactly that. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> well, as we... Uh, as we begin the sermon time, I probably need to gather myself and get a little control here. <clears throat> Almost uh, 14 years ago, my dad went home to live with the Savior he loved. 
That wasn't supposed to be the emotional part. <laughs> I miss them often, maybe especially on Sundays. <laughs> it wasn't uh, <clears throat> intended for this sermon, but one of my dad's favorite songs to sing was what we sang earlier, I could sing of your love forever. Like many sons, I, uh, I often hear how much I look like my father, especially as I get older and have a little less hair on my head and a little more on my chin. It gets a little whiter. The longer I live, the more I cherish that as a compliment. Sometimes it'll catch me off guard. I'll be walking up to the car and catch my reflection in the window and, oh, thought I saw Dad there for a minute. I see it in my brother sometimes, the way he walks or holds himself, and I, I see my dad. I see it in my sister, in her fierce loyalty. <laughs> Some might call it stubbornness, but she's not in the room, so I can't really say that. You know, it's natural. It's natural that I should resemble my father, aside from genetics that make it obvious. <clears throat> Children tend to take on the characteristics of their families, of their parents, even adopted children. Over, the, over time, we see children develop those, those values, those characteristics, the personal traits of the home they grow up in. I have some friends uh, who have a, a, a child adopted from Ethiopia. He doesn't physically look like them, but as he grows, he becomes more and more like the characteristic of that family. It's undeniable when we see that. That's kind of the point Paul is making in Ephesians 4, 1 through 4. We're going to focus in on that part of our text today. Here's what he says. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient Bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Paul is telling us the core reality that we'll see throughout today's message, and it's sort of a, uh, a preamble, if you will, to the rest of the book of Ephesians. The core reality is this, new life in Christ leads to new living that reflects Christ. I tried a bunch of catchier ways to say it, and none of them really captured what, what I wanted to get across, what I believe Paul is trying to get across. So I apologize for the awkwardness of it, but hopefully it will connect with your heart and mind. New life in Christ leads to new living that reflects Christ. In other words, if I could shorten it, changed hearts make changed lives. If you know the reality of Jesus, if you have embraced him by faith, and you have partaken of the grace of God, then the things that, God, that Paul has said in the previous three chapters are true of you. If you have trusted, if you have believed the promises of God, and you have trusted in what he said by faith, you've received this, you recognize it as true, and you have aligned yourself with it, then Paul says, the scriptures tell us, that you are in Christ. You have a new identity. And he goes to great lengths in the first three chapters, especially the first two, to elucidate that for us. We want to see it clearly. And he establishes that as a foundation for what he's going to say in the rest of this letter. 
If you know the reality of, of Jesus, then your life should show the reality of Jesus. He works through this in just these first four verses in sort of a, a topic sentence, if you will. Obviously, it's more than a sentence. But as he's laying out the, the whole theme of what he's about to say through the rest of chapter 4 and chapter 5 and into chapter 6, Paul is going to give details to build out what it looks like to do what he's talking about here. And what he's talking about here is us bearing a family resemblance. Let's, let's jump right into it. First, we see that we have a new identity as children of the king. We have a new identity as children of the king. Right there in verse 1, Paul, who speaks as a prisoner for the Lord, I'll come back to that. It, in the NIV it says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, in most translations, it starts with therefore, or has therefore in the sentence, because that's really his point. You see, in light of everything that I've said prior to this, in light of the fact that this incredible God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus, he is always glorified in Christ Jesus. He is glorified in the church as we reflect Jesus. Because the church is in Christ. When this happens, God is glorified. It is able to happen because of what he said in chapters 1 and 2. Let's turn back there just briefly. And you know when a preacher says briefly, he does not mean briefly. <laughs> Ephesians 1, starting with verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Who is the us he's talking about? Well, he says that in verse 1 of, of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, here's who he's writing to, to the saints. Your translation may say to the holy ones. To those set apart for God. That's what it means to be a saint. It's to be holy. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart. So as we see that concept, understand that this holiness idea that keeps coming up is not a matter of you living according to some religious standard. It's a matter of you living as one set apart for God. Your life no longer belongs to you. Not that it ever really did. But you've gotten out of the driver's seat. You've gotten into the back seat. God is no longer, you know, according to your claim, your co-pilot. What a bad idea that is. So God's my second in command? That's pretty smart. No, no, I'm in the back seat. I was in the front seat, trying really hard to be the driver thinking I was making real good time, but always ending up the late arriver. Now, I'm living in the back seat, right? And I find that it's a better place to be. And as I'm doing this, in this back seat life, I'm leaving all the drive into the chief. When I get to this place, the life that comes from me isn't any longer from me, but the Holy Spirit who now lives in me. As I live in Christ, the Spirit lives in me, and the Christian living that gets done does not come from my great efforts, from my religious piety, but instead from a transformation that has taken place. I have received from God a new heart. My desire is not what it was. I no longer desire to be the driver, to be the chief, to be in command. I now desire to do everything to please him, to draw attention to how beautiful God is, how amazing my Savior is. This is a life set apart for God. Well, if I've been set apart for him, then that should match up. Going back to Ephesians 1, 
looking at, at uh, verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves, in the beloved son Jesus. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. He has set us right. He has purchased us. He has redeemed our lives through his death and resurrection. We have in him the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring, and here's the theme of Ephesians, all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. This bringing together of all things under Christ extends to all races, all backgrounds, eventually all of even the physical creation reconciled, the curse removed. But right now, right now, putting all things under Christ's feet, reconciled to God, includes my living, my conduct, so that I don't have any incongruity Nothing that doesn't match up between who I am in Christ and how I live my daily life. That's what this is all about. That's the wholeness, the oneness, the reconciliation that we have in Christ. When you see words like peace or harmony in here, that's the idea that you wouldn't have things that don't match, that clash whether we're talking about music or sports. You know, one of the things that I, I love about watching sports is a finely tuned, well-practiced, well-trained team where everything just clicks. When you're on the basketball court and somebody sets just a beautiful pick and you see a, a beautiful move around the corner that sets up a perfect shot, especially when it sets up a shot for someone else. When I watch a, a football offense that's really coming together, and I see 10 guys working together, sacrificing so that one guy can carry the football, there's a beauty in that. It's like a ballet on grass <laughs> with a lot of physical aggression. But the beauty of this is in its harmony. That's what Paul is calling us to, is a life that is harmonious within ourselves and with one another because our harmony with God, purchased for us in Christ, results in a harmonious living before God, where what we do matches what we say, and what we say matches what is true. That's the point. We have a new identity as children of the king. He has chosen us for adoption so that we are in him now children of God. Not everyone is a child of God. Look at chapter 2. As for you, speaking to the Gentiles, but really to all believers, he'll clarify that a little later on, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That is not a description of someone who is a child of God. That is not a description of someone whose life is governed by God, who has submitted themselves to his rule. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. <coughs> and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, not children of God. 
But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We are spiritually seated with Christ where he is reigning and ruling. So are we. We are in him. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We do not craft ourselves. He crafts us. We have a new identity as children of the king. John 3, 3, Jesus says that you must be born again. It's a word that, that has been bandied about a lot, so much so that we forget it's actually the words of Jesus. When, when he says be born again, he confuses the Pharisee that he's talking to, who shouldn't be confused and yet is. Jesus is saying, you are now, if you are in Christ, you are dead to that old life, and you are reborn as his disciple. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Paul himself says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. We identify with him in our baptism. The act of baptism identifies us with the death and resurrection of Christ. Paul says, I've, I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We have a new identity as children of the King. The reality of our new life in Christ is reflected in our new walk with Christ. The evidence of the new life in Christ is a new way of living for Christ. It's who we are. We have a new identity. Therefore, the way we live should match that. Second, notice this. Our new identity comes with certain responsibilities. Our new identity comes with certain responsibilities. Now, as we see Paul unfold this in the first two chapters, he talks about the power of God at work in us. This is how God raises us from the dead, just as he raised Jesus from the dead. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in us, raising us with Christ, according to Romans 6.4, to walk in newness of life. So that we now can live a life in Christ that we were incapable of living prior to that. Apart from him, apart from, from Jesus and faith in him, I cannot live a life pleasing to God no matter how much I strive, no matter how good my deeds might be. Because without faith, Hebrews 11.6, it's impossible to please God. Right? So if the, if the first and foremost of all commandments is to love God above everything else, with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, then wouldn't it stand to reason that anything other than that, anything that isn't loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, would be chief among all sins? It's logical for us to recognize that apart from Christ, I cannot please God. Check this out, though. Once I'm in Christ, when he has made me his child, all of my past is wiped out. And I can never not please him in who I am. My behaviors can be displeasing, just as my, my children. I have a few of them here with me today. I am always pleased with them as my children. I adore them more than I can express. 
But sometimes they do things that they ought not do. Things that don't reflect the values that we espouse as a family. Things that don't reflect, honestly, their love for me. I don't automatically assume, oh man, they don't love me. They're not my children anymore. I don't abandon them at that point, even though it hurts. Even though I may have to intercede and discipline them. Once they're, you know, adults and, you know, over six feet and bigger than me, it's harder to turn them over my knee, but sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. The reality of it is, it doesn't change the relationship. But before, before they become a part of my family, my children by birth or perhaps by adoption, nothing they do in their actions no matter how much they look like they belong to our family, until they join our family, they're not. Just not. You could put on a jersey with Zyger on the back of it all day long. Doesn't mean you're a Zyger. I have uh, a son-in-law and daughters-in-law who have joined the family. And while Stanton may not share the last name, he is kin to us. The girls get the name. They get, they get the better deal. But the reality is, when we are in Christ with a new identity as children of the King, that identity comes with certain responsibilities. Some of you, the holiest among you, are thinking right now of Spider-Man. With great power comes great responsibility. That's so true of a child of the King. Haven't we seen that play out over and over in the news related to the British royalty? as we think uh, of Prince Philip's passing this week, haven't we over and over for years, even decades, seen the media follow the steps of these royal children and grandchildren, just parsing every breath, every word, every action as to whether or not it's really royal in how they carry themselves. This prince or this duchess isn't really acting like a royal, right? We've seen that. We recognize that. How true is that same thing of us as children of the Most High King? There are responsibilities that come with that. There is a life that is suitable. In, in uh, Ephesians 4.1, when it is translated here, living a life worthy. <clears throat> that word worthy is the Greek axios, one of the coolest words in the Greek language, just in my personal opinion. And that term translated here worthy in other passages is translated differently, often as appropriate, suitable, fitting. That's the idea here. This this word axios has to do with weights balanced on a scale. That the weight on one side is equivalent to the weight on the other side. It's worth this. That's how values would be estimated in ancient times. Because it matches. The life of a child of God needs to match the identity of a child of God. We need to remember who we are and remember whose we are so that the name that we represent is well represented, that it matches who we are. <clears throat> we saw that we are saved by grace in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Not by our works, but in Ephesians 2.10, we see that we are God's workmanship. We are created in Christ for the works he's prepared for us in advance. There are responsibilities. Notice that when Jesus calls the disciples in the Gospels, there is a call to follow. 
And we see even, even more specifically in Matthew 10.38, uh, Luke 9.23, Jesus says to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There are responsibilities that go along with being a Christ follower. That's why I so often prefer that title over Christian. Christian has kind of lost its power. Once upon a time, people understood that to mean little Christ. It was originally a derogatory term. Mocking believers, calling them little Christs. Oh man, I wish that someone would see me as a little Christ. But Christ follower, it's hard to get away from. The concept is, I follow Christ. I walk with Christ, stepping in his steps, like a little child following their daddy through deep snow, trying to step into those big footprints so that I don't sink. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Those who have been made alive in Christ have been made to live in Christ. Let me say that again. Those who have been made alive in Christ have been made to live in Christ. Our new identity comes with certain responsibilities. Also there in verse 1 we see this. Holiness involves living a life that fits who we truly are. Holiness involves living a life that fits who we truly are. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He does not say you receive your calling when you live worthy enough to earn it. He does not say get your life together and God will accept you. He does not say that Jesus died so that you can have God's grace if you keep your nose clean. He did not say Jesus died and rose again and he will accept you if you follow the law and keep his commands. In fact, we see throughout the Old Testament the same dynamic, the same principle, always having been true. Now, as, as Paul had written earlier in, in this letter, the mystery of God is revealed to us in Christ. We see more clearly in Christ what the law and the prophets have always seen. That no one has ever been saved by keeping the law. The Old Testament law did not save the Jews. It did not save the Hebrews. It was what they did because they were the people of God. Now, it didn't apply in the same way to the Gentiles, to those outside. It applied in that it was always the right way to live, but it was not given to them. Because even if those who were outside of Israel kept the details of the law, not acknowledging God, still worshiping Baal, still following Moloch and sacrificing their children and all these things. But they did all of the other things, but they didn't come on God's terms. They did not get access to God and they could not be saved. There was a surrender that was necessary so that before the keeping of the law became worthwhile for them, they had to join the tribe, if you will. They had to become part of the nation, part of the family of God. The same is true of us. You can do all the good deed doing and all the rule keeping in the world. You can be the kid who never gets in trouble in school, who is the, the top of your class, and everybody looks at you, and maybe even they mock you as goody two-shoes, right? You can do all that stuff and not know Christ. And you'll be dead in your sins. But when you are in Christ, when you know him, then just like Israel of old, then these things must be 
your very heart. As Jeff read for us earlier from Psalm 119, verses 33 to 40, I keep your commands, Lord, because I love them. Cause me to love them, Lord. Your word, your commands represent who you are. They represent your heart. Therefore, I want my heart to desire them. And when I live according to who I am, according to those responsibilities, we see that the holiness, the holiness fits. It matches Children of the king conduct themselves as children of the king. The life of a child of God ought to reflect that new identity. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, Paul writes, And such were some of you. He's been talking about everybody that's not getting into heaven. Right? In fact, he goes on, uh, as he develops the thought, it becomes clear, not just some, all of us. Just as he said here in, in Ephesians 2, you were dead. And we were all dead. We were all in that spot. And he's just gotten done in 1 Corinthians 6 saying, man, you need to understand, these immoral folks, and he lists a whole bunch of stuff, will never enter the kingdom of God. And guess what? That's you, buddy. That's me. I ain't getting in. And neither are you. Here's what he says. Such were... Notice the past tense, some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, that's not who you are anymore. It used to be. But it's not you. Holiness involves living a life that fits who we truly are. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. If you're in Ephesians, you're going to turn back to the left a little bit. Don't go too far. The books in the New Testament are kind of short. Romans chapter 6. Paul, having addressed the fact that, that, that we were dead in our association with Adam, but we are now made alive through our association with Christ, says in chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? He's, he's been making this point about grace, overcoming sin. So the argument that some might make, and, and foolishly, but, but we make it, is, well, if it makes God look better in giving grace to me when I sin, and I think this is a misapplication of, of Luther's words when he said sin boldly, if it makes God look better when I look worse so he can pour out his grace on me, well then shouldn't I just go out and keep on sinning and keep on living however I want to live so that in my darkness God's light shines? How foolish. Therefore, oops, sorry, wrong passage. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin, check this out now, so that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Hallelujah. Isn't that what we celebrated last Sunday? The beauty, the power, the unbelievable majesty of our resurrected Lord. Death no longer has mastery over him, and we are in him. Verse 10, the death he died... He died to sin once for all. For all of us. 
But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Man, I've got to read that verse again. In the same way, what he just described, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness, for sin shall not be your master, because you're not under law, but under grace. It's not a matter of living the right way so you can earn points with God or impress people. It's a matter of living a life set apart for God that matches your new identity. Holiness involves living a life that fits who we truly are. New life in Christ leads to new living that reflects Christ. Right? That's our core reality. That's what Paul's getting at here. That's what we're going to see for the rest of chapter 4 and for the details of chapter 5 and going into chapter 6. We're going to see this idea that new life in Christ leads to new living that reflects Christ. With that in mind, here's our next point. A life that is fitting reflects the reality and character of Christ. A life that is fitting reflects the reality the reality and character of Christ. Look at verse 2 of Ephesians 4. After, after saying, hey, you know, you, you need to live a life that's worthy of the calling you received, he describes what that looks like in pretty general terms here. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. These will be built out in the rest of, the, of uh, Ephesians. This is the power that we need to recognize. When we live this life that matches, that life is going to look like Jesus. These descriptors here, these character traits of humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, these things lead to the harmony that we'll be seeing as we move forward. A life that is fitting reflects the reality and character of Christ. Children of God should reflect the family values. When we know Jesus, we show Jesus. 1 John 2.6, which probably should have been our, our memory verse for today, but I went with uh, Romans 12.1. 1 John 2.6 says, Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. I'm going to read that again. It's the premise for the Charles Sheldon classic book, In His Steps. 1 John 2.6 Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Those who are in Christ reflect Christ. This is what it means to follow Jesus, to do what he did, to demonstrate his character, even, maybe especially, in suffering. The harder it is, the more important it is for us to demonstrate the character of Jesus. If I'm following, I'm going in the same direction. If I'm following, I go where he goes. Wherever he leads, I go with him. A life that is fitting reflects the reality and character of Christ. We're going to build that up a little bit more in our next point, which is the character of Christ is demonstrated through relationships. The character of Christ is demonstrated through relationships. Notice in verse 2, as we see these character qualities, these character traits brought out, Paul's talking about things that apply in connection with other people. You can't escape the concept of church life, doing life together as the body, 
in the book of Ephesians. Every chapter either has the word church or a synonym for it, all connected because the church life, doing life together as the body of Christ, is the emphasis here. Not so much the individual. It, yes, individual stones are what builds this spiritual house. But we together are the temple of the Lord. The character of Christ is demonstrated through relationships. In Matthew 22, 37-40, we see Jesus talking about the greatest commandment. We see it in, in the other Gospels, especially in Mark. We see it in the Old Testament. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your, all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And to reflect that, the second part, Jesus said, the second is like it. This is one of the themes of the law that comes up over and over again. And Jesus, in, other, in another spot, encapsulates the entire law here. If you want to love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. He says this is the nail on which everything hangs. The law and the prophets hang together here. Right? If I do to others what I would want others to do to me, then I will not violate the law in taking care of others. When I love someone, when I seek your needs ahead of my needs, then I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to defraud you. I'm not going to abuse you or oppress you. I'm not going to treat you as an object. I'm going to see you as the image bearer of God that you are. And so in keeping these first two commandments, loving God ahead of everything else, and expressing that by my love for others in relationships, I don't have to worry about the details of the law so much because the goodness of the law will come out in how I treat people. Turn just slightly to the right in Ephesians, past Ephesians, to the book of Philippians. If you get to Colossians, you went too far. There's only a couple of pages between them. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 2. Paul again writing, still in prison, saying to the people in Philippi, as he writes to the saints there, those who are set apart for God. He says, if you have any encouragement, this is Philippians 2, starting with verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do you recognize how this connects with the theme of Ephesians in this oneness? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling, without complaining or arguing. <clears throat> Sorry, I memorized it in a different translation. So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe 
as you hold out the word of life. The character of Christ is demonstrated through relationships. Notice our last point here. Our unity is real in Christ. Living it out requires effort. Our unity is real in Christ. Living it out requires effort. Verse 3, he says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then in verse 4, he gives the foundation for this idea. Why can we say that we are already united? Right? Because if you're saying keep the unity, what he's saying is you're already united. You already have the unity. Now you have to maintain that. Right? So we, we have a republic if we can keep it. We have unity in the church, but we are charged to make every effort to keep, to maintain that already established unity through the bond of peace. How do we know that it's already real? Well, it says there's one body, the church, and one spirit, the Holy Spirit, in us. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, all of us, regardless of background, all of us have the same hope in Christ, only grace. There is nothing else. There is no other path. There is no religion that gets to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I don't come offering something. I come as a beggar with nothing. One hope to which we are called. One Lord. When you read Lord, you should hear in your mind the term master. He he calls the shots. One faith. Here it's not talking about trusting uh, the verb faith, but he's talking about the doctrine. There is one faith entrusted to the saints once and for all. There is one sound doctrine. We hold to this one faith. One baptism. Well, that can be confusing because lots of Christian denominations do lots of different things as far as how they go about baptism. But the point in each of it, regardless of our understanding, still comes down to identification with Christ and his body, the church, in every case. Some put more weight on it than others. Some do uh, infant baptism, pedo-baptism, as a sign of the covenant. Some, like us, believe that the Bible teaches credo-baptism. In other words, according to your confession of faith, and you're baptized as a chosen act to signify that you are in Christ. But in all of these cases, it's one baptism in that we are identified with the one Lord and the one faith through this act. One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Our unity is real in Christ. It is already established. It is already accomplished. When Jesus died and rose again and established the church, we all were already one body. That is the fact, the reality. All division comes after the fact when we have failed to keep, to maintain the unity. We begin to see things through our sin-stained lens, our sin-stained filter. So we see people through human eyes. And when we think of people in a worldly fashion, then we end up with all kinds of horrible, sinful divisions. Jew, Gentile, black, white, rich, poor. Cubs fans, Cardinals fans, all, you know, all those things, all those wicked divisions where we divide each other. In our time right now, how much do we see between Democrat and Republican? We can disagree about lots of things in life. But if it's part of this life, if it's tied to this life here, why in the world would we let it upset the unity of what lasts eternally? 
Never, never give up the lasting to hold on to the passing. It makes no sense. Our unity is real in Christ, but living it out requires effort. Verse 4 is the foundation for our unity being already established in the reality of Christ. God is one. There's a wholeness. There's a completeness. There's a unity in Him. There's only one salvation, one truth, and we're already united in it, if indeed we are in Christ. Galatians 3, verses 26 to 29, goes to great lengths to establish that, that, that there's neither Jew nor Gentile nor male nor female, because we are in Christ. Romans 12, I'll assign you these for your homework rather than to read them for you now. Romans 12, starting out with verse 1, our memory verse for today, therefore, in light of God's, in view of God's mercy, okay, we then should respond by making our lives, our bodies, a living sacrifice for Him. He died for us, we live for Him. This is our spiritual, reasonable, true and proper act of worship. And then the rest of the chapter goes on to describe what it looks like to live a life of love that unifies us. We're already one, now we have to act like it. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about that very thing in, in terms of spiritual gifts, that we're one body, but we all do different things. The spleen should not be jealous of the pancreas. That's illogical. We all work together. And he goes into that chapter that we're all familiar with, but maybe we don't pay attention to because we hear it at weddings so often. That 1 Corinthians 13, the most excellent way. If we're going to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, then we live a life of love. So your homework is to read Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 together. New life in Christ leads to new living that reflects Christ. But what about when I fail to live like who I am in Christ? Then what? I didn't give you any blanks to fill in here because I want to make sure that we're all paying attention hearing it. We need to hear with our hearts as well as with our minds. If you're anything like me at all, you have a hard time sometimes wrestling with living a life worthy. Because if you're anything like me at all, you know that you have not lived a life worthy of the calling. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about you, whether they think that you're sinner or saint or somewhere between Jesus and John Wayne. The reality is what God knows and you know. And it's tough when we get past the religion of it all. Religion's easy. I check a box and I'm good, right? I do certain things, I don't do other things, and I'm good. But the entire point of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and 6 is to get us to recognize it's not about the outside. Before the sin ever hits your hands, it starts in your heart. There is something in us What about when I fail to live like who I am in Christ? Let me just draw your attention to Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. I don't think I put that in your program, so you might want to jot it down. Jeremiah says, the Lord's compassions never fail. They're new every morning. That's the reason we're not consumed. He's speaking of God's judgment against his own people, the nation of Israel, as they are in exile. And, and it's tearing him up inside. It's killing him to see the horrors of God's discipline for his people. And yet he says, because the, God, the, the Lord's compassions never fail, we're not consumed. His compassions, his mercies to us are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, Lord. When I blow it, God doesn't change. 
1 John 1, verses 8 to 10. Many of you are familiar with this. It says, if, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I was talking to believers. John's writing this to the church, to the saints, the holy ones, set apart for God. If we claim to be without sin, then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, if we acknowledge this before God, and we turn from this, He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us, purify us from all unrighteousness. This is not the same as the forgiveness we receive in Christ. This is the day-to-day -day relational fellowship forgiveness. We're still as children, just like my children stay mine when they disobey. But this is the making it right. God doesn't hold it against you when you recognize it and you stand up and you move on. Romans 7, for the sake of time, I won't read it to you. Starting with verse 14, Paul describes his struggles with sin as the great apostle writing these books of Scripture, planting churches, spreading the gospel, the greatest evangelist there is. He says, I, I still am stuck doing what I don't want to do and I, I don't do what I know I'm supposed to do. What am I going to do here? But he recognizes that no longer defines me. It's not who I am anymore. I still struggle with sin. It still is in me because I carry this body around and, and, and sin still lives here, but it's not who I am. It's who I used to be. And sometimes I slip back into that. And he wrestles with guilt the same as we do. When I blow it, when I fail to live like who I truly am. When my behaviors and attitudes don't reflect Christ. Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am. Who's going to rescue me from the body of this death? Praise be to God. God does it. God does it in Jesus Christ so we can go on to say in Romans 8.1, Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I am not bound by that law. I am not bound to sin anymore. He has set me free from that. Now I live according to the law of the Spirit. So I live a life that matches who I am. And sometimes I stumble. Sometimes I fall. But nothing can ever separate me from the love of Christ. If God is the one who justifies us, who is he that condemns us? Who can bring any accusation against those whom God has set right? So let go of the lie as your thoughts condemn you. When your hearts say, I can't belong to God. I've blown it again. How could I blow it again? I must not be his. That is a lie from the accuser. And God says, sweet child, you're mine. Stand up. Let's walk together. Like a child learning to walk. And isn't that what we all are? Sometimes we fall. But you get up and you press on. Sometimes falling gets you dirty and you have to stop and take measures to clean up. But it's just a moment. It's not who you are. You're not defined by that fall, by that dirt. Sometimes falling hurts you or hurts others or breaks things and you have to stop and take measures to heal or to fix it. But it's just a moment. It's not who you are. You are not defined by the falling. You are defined by your Father God. And He says that in Jesus Christ, you are precious, accepted, whole, and most importantly, you are His. Amen. New life in Christ. 
leads to new living that reflects Christ. If we belong to the family of God in Christ, those around us should easily see the family resemblance. The more closely we walk with the Lord, the more clearly we will reflect the reality of who He is as we live a life that reflects who we are in Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we recognize that we do fall. We stumble. Teach us not to wallow in it. Teach us not to doubt you when we drop the ball. (coughs) Help us not to dwell on the play that's behind us, but the one that's in front of us. Father, thank you that you have given us new life in your Son, Jesus Christ. And let us now, out of gratitude for that, make ourselves a living sacrifice that we could say with Paul, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. So that our new living reflects the reality of Christ through our relationships. Lord, May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we say, amen.